May I speak to you in the name of the one who was and is and evermore shall be. Amen. Have you ever encountered a hinge moment in your life? An instant when it becomes clear to you suddenly that everything up until then, all of your life experience, good and bad, quiet and loud, active and restful, all of it has been preparing you little by little to be ready for exactly the challenge that is right in front of you. That your own imperfect self, even with all of your flaws, has been perfectly made to meet this moment. That you have a duty to respond to it. That you have a voice and the agency to raise it. And that no matter how unsure you may be about what will come, the tools that you need have already been given to you. And you know that you will somehow find solid ground. I want to detour for a moment to describe a scene from the TV series The Crown which I'm sure some of you have watched. Let me say in advance that this is not an endorsement of the monarchy or all of the issues surrounding it, of which there are many, but there's one short scene that relates very well to our gospel text today because in it, someone experiences just such a hinge moment. It's in the very first episode of the series, Wolferton Splash. Elizabeth, then princess, has married Philip, and realizing that his health is not good, her father, King George, wakes up the new Prince Philip very early one morning to take him out shooting, like you do. During their time together, the king finds a quiet moment with his new son-in-law to say, you understand the titles, the dukedom, they are not the job. Sir, Philip responds with confusion. Looking keenly at the younger man, George answers, she is the job. She is the essence of your duty, loving her, protecting her. Of course, you'll miss your career, long pause, but doing this for her, to me, there can be no greater act of patriotism or love. I understand, sir, Philip responds. Do you, boy? Do you really? Then the camera focuses very closely on Philip's worried face as he responds with newfound trepidation. I think so. 
The two men continue to observe each other, the older one using just his eyes to impress the seriousness of this endeavor on the younger. He knows all too well that he will soon be dead and that the very young Elizabeth will be queen. This is also, I think, the first time that Philip realizes George is going to die far sooner than anyone expected. It's really an astonishing moment. And it came into my mind this week when thinking about Joseph. She is the essence of your duty, loving her, protecting her. That is the clear message that I am hearing this year in our gospel passage. Because isn't that exactly what Joseph realizes he has to do? Make Mary the essence of his duty. Dietrich Bonhoeffer famously said, action springs not from thought, but from the willingness to take responsibility. Isn't that exactly what Joseph does? Take responsibility. Both our Hebrew Bible text and our gospel text today speak of pregnant women. As Liz reminded us in her email, the mother and the child in the Isaiah text were not an extraordinary pairing. They were a very normal one. Why then has this verse become such a touchstone for Christians? So often we hear Christians translated, as we just did, Look, the virgin is with child and shall bear a son. I send out thanks to Amy Jill Levine and Meredith Ward for conveniently discussing this very passage a few weeks ago in a forum at St. Bart's. Levine reminds us that while the Hebrew original always means young woman, Matthew was quoting from the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. That Greek word could mean either young woman or virgin. So Matthew deliberately chose the Greek instead of the original Hebrew, which he surely would have known because he was Jewish. He's intentionally telling the story through a Christian lens. So this does not, of course, mean that Matthew's interpretation, therefore, is invalid. But neither are all the other interpretations from the original Hebrew. Matthew made the choice based on his agenda as a follower of Jesus. Others make other choices and their interpretations are also valid. What Levine finds most fascinating about both the original Isaiah and Matthew's use of it is that they connect us to the harsh reality of those who need protection, those who are marginalized by their very existence. 
She asks us to use this passage to consider other babies, other children, and most importantly, other women. How are we caring for them? How are their needs being met? Let's not forget that only a few lines later in Matthew, we hear about Herod's murder of the innocents, the wholesale slaughter of a generation of infant boys. The story of a politician using women's bodies and babies as leverage to cling to power by nefarious and deadly methods. Who could imagine such a thing? Taking inappropriate ownership of women's bodies and using them as pawns, regardless of how much damage it does to them? All to serve the struggle for power and money and control? And doing so quite blatantly with very little care for the actual babies that are, that are birthed? Or the mothers? Who can imagine? Who indeed? But here's the thing. Joseph could. How can we know this? Let's start by looking backwards from this short passage in which we hear Joseph dreaming a dream. Joseph was a man with a seasoned record of caring for others. He was the father of other children, so he had proven that he was willing to provide for those in his household. He was a widower, so he had known the pain of loving and caring for another wife and of losing her. He had seen her give birth and nurturing their children. As a father, he had no doubt felt the anxiousness and worry of what his daughters, how they would be treated by other men. He was also a craftsperson, someone who had skills with his hands to provide for his family and therefore was able to ply his trade pretty much anywhere because his skills were needed everywhere. He may have been based in the very small town of Nazareth, but the wealthy cosmopolitan city of Sepphoris was only a few miles away. So Joseph also had experience working for many different kinds of people, rich and poor, Jewish and Gentile, Roman and Judean, moving among changing circles as he did his job. Knowledge, experience, and perhaps even contacts to him that would have been valuable to him when he had to get up and go and flee with his newborn son and wife to Egypt. What else had he seen and experienced that prepared him for this moment, this liminal time when he had to choose how to respond to the pregnancy of his betrothed, vulnerable teenage wife? 
we cannot fully know. But we do know that he could have chosen what Matthew tells us he considered, to put her aside quietly. Given his namesake, the Joseph of the Hebrew Bible, given the history of the earlier Joseph dreaming dreams and being ready, willing, and able to care for and provide for his very large extended family, given that the earlier Joseph did so despite having been betrayed by his brothers who sold him into slavery, one has to wonder what other thoughts went through this Joseph's mind as he pondered exactly what to do. Could it have been that this Joseph understood he was at an inflection point, that his entire life experience until then had equipped him with the tools that he needed, literally and figuratively, to be prepared for this time, to be the protector and provider for the miraculous infant who was coming into the world, the word that became flesh and pitched his tent among us. What better human father could Jesus have than Joseph? What better help meet could Mary have than Joseph? Joseph, son of David, the angel says to him in the dream, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She is the essence of your duty, loving her, protecting her. Is this not the most glorious calling in of love that we can imagine? The calling in God sent to Joseph, asking him to use his huge heart and skills and practical knowledge of the world to protect this new mother and child, to nurture God among us and the woman who chose to say yes. Did his heart sing with joy when he made this decision? Did he stand taller and straighter after he made this resolve? Did he make those choices knowing he was meeting the moment by stepping forward, willing to take responsibility? I like to think that he did. Sometimes there are things we are looking for right under our noses, but we don't see them immediately because they arrive in ways that we don't expect. And sometimes they look too much like what we might expect, but we overlook them because we never believed that the same kind of thing would happen to us again. And sometimes everything converges and we rise up to meet a particular moment because we realize we have exactly what we need to serve. The journey of faith is surprising in those ways. 
But God is always loving us, calling us, responding to us, and working with us to love the world. God is always inviting us into the conversation. And when we do so, when we choose, as Joseph did, to respond, we're following a path of attention, a path of faith, and a path of love. I want to end with one of Emily Dickinson's classic poems. We never know how high we are till we are called to rise. And then, if we are true to plan, our statures touch the skies. The heroism we recite would be a daily thing did not ourselves the cubits warp for fear to be a king. Amen.